Welcome, Compass Bible Church, to the Compass Equip Podcast. Ooh, come on. This is Pastor Evan, and I'm here with Pastor Hayden. Hey, guys. And here at Compass, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, we reach the world for Christ. We teach everyone to be like Christ and train everyone to serve Christ. And everything that we do, including this podcast, is to fulfill that mission, to reach, teach, and train so that we can make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, Compass, the sermon series, Navigating Culture, is continuing. The sermon title is Staying Focused on the Destination. And the, the verses are coming from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, but ending in the first verse of chapter 3. So let me read that to you, and we'll dive into some sermon commentary from Pastor Hayden. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. All right, Pastor Hayden, what are what is some sermon commentary you have for us on Colossians 2, 20 verses going all the way to chapter 3, verse 1? Hey guys, glad to be with you uh, this week. What we need to understand uh, from this sermon is that we as believers must not find our direction from a culture that is pointing us to the lesser glories, these things that don't save, these things that don't fulfill, these things that never get us to God. But we need to be directed through the unchanging message of God's Word that guides us to the ultimate destination, and that is in God's presence. That's why the beautiful thing about this text is at the end, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, if you've been raised with Christ, that means if you've been saved, you need to seek the things that are above where Christ is. And where is he at? At the right hand of God. He's there in the presence of God, and we can be there in the presence of God, which means that we need to be seeking those things where Christ is. And so as Christians, we got to make sure that we're not following culture that's going to point us to things that are not God. We need to be pointing ourselves to the unchanging message of God's Word and living that out. Now, what that looked like this past weekend in our points is, number one, you need to reject direction that is based on human wisdom. Uh, this it seems like a hard truth, and it is a hard truth, because there are so many things in our world that is half true. There's so many things in our world that seems attractive, and even Paul says it in Colossians, is there is, are these things, these religious things, these good things that seem good from the outside that have an appearance of wisdom. They appear from the outside as wise and good and religious. They even promote this self-made religion. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are of no value. They're of no good value at all. And so we have to make sure that we go to God's Word because we know that it's in God's Word, His revealed uh, His revealed Word, the revelation that we have in His Scripture, uh, gives us what we need for life and godliness. And so we got to make sure that the Bible isn't the last thing we go to and we can't find any answers, but it's always the first thing we go to that will give us the answers. And to do that, you're going to have to understand point number two, and you're going to have to live it out. You need to value the Bible's capacity to direct you in holiness. you got to value the Bible's capacity to 
direct you in holiness. You got to value it. It's got to be the first thing you go to. You don't doubt scripture. I mean, have questions about, you know, what is the nature of scripture? Uh, can we trust uh, the transmission of scripture? Great, great questions that we can answer and that, uh, that we have great uh, theologians, great godly people who've written volumes on these things. They're, they're, they're good questions. But at the end of the day, we got to come down to the conclusion that the Bible has been preserved perfectly, that the Bible has gives us everything we need for life and godliness, and we need to value the Bible's capacity to direct us in holiness. The world's always going to lead us to unholiness. God's word's going to direct us to holiness. Now, the last thing we need to do, if we're going to keep our eyes on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, we need to spend our time pursuing Christ. That means in daily Bible reading, in studying God's word, in living in Christian community. That means going to life groups. A little side note there, that means not being signed up for a life group, that's not what makes it community. Being signed up for a group isn't community. Being plugged into a group is what makes it community. That means just because you're in a life group doesn't mean that you're pursuing Christ. Going to life group and living life together with Christians means you're pursuing Christ. And that's one of the many ways to do it. But we have to make sure that our time is being spent uh, pursuing Christ. So much in this world is vying for our attention and vying for our our, our time and our lives and our, and our thoughts. And we got to make sure that we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we pursue Christ uh, 100% in our lives through uh, a lot of things that we do at Compass Bible Church, reading God's Word, studying, praying, uh, community, uh, a lot of these things. We can keep going on and on, but at the end of the day, you've got to spend your time not on the lesser glories of the world, but of pursuing Christ. All right, Pastor Hayden, as they prepare to go through the application questions this week, what are like what are two things they need to keep their minds on as they sit down, you know, get their cup of coffee, cup of tea, open their Bibles, and write down their notes and the application questions? What are like two practical things that they need to keep in mind with all that being said? The first thing is when you read the scriptures in the questions, uh, derive your answer from that text, because we are trying to, as, as pastors and as shepherds, we're trying to help everyone look at the text, exegete the text. What did it mean then? What, did it, what does it mean for always? And what does it mean for us now? And so what that means is read the text, then answer the question, uh, that application question, in light of the text that we have there, in light of the scriptures that we have you reading. Go back to those and then answer that question in light of those scriptures. Now, secondly, is this. When you answer the question, don't just give your commentary on it. Give your application. What's going to change in your life this week because of this question? What are you going to do this week because of these scriptures? What are we going to do this week to pursue Christ? What are we going to do this week to better value the Bible's capacity to direct you in holiness? What are you going to do this week to reject direction that is based on human wisdom? That is how we walk in obedience to God, by being doers of the word and not hearers only. And those are a couple of things you can do in your application questions to help that out. Awesome. And that's making sure when we're reading our Bibles, it's making sure we're you know, we're trying to pull the meaning of the text rather than trying to read into it. And so for your applications, this uh, questions this week, but also in your daily Bible reading. And so we are entering now our DBR, Daily Bible Reading Spotlight. We, we're here at Compass as we read the entire Bible. Old Testament and New, on this podcast, we're going to be focusing on helping you be prepared to read the Old Testament. And this is the time of year where DBR dreams you know, come to die, because this is where the nitty gritty, the details come in. We're about to enter Leviticus, and many people say, I can't do it. But here at Compass, we want to equip you to not only push through and read it, but also, more importantly, to better understand it so that you can better know how to live a life submissive to God and his plan. 
So here this week at Compass, we will be finishing the book of Exodus, which is an exciting thing. We'll be entering Leviticus soon enough. But as a reminder, as a background for Exodus, keep in mind when you're reading the entire Bible, but especially Exodus, this is God's redemption, is, is his, his promise found in Genesis 3.15 and 16 being played out. That the offspring, another word, the same word is new Adam. A new Adam will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so now he's let, God is laying out that plan to, to, to show how he is going to defeat Satan. And now as we enter Exodus um, uh, 25 all the way to Exodus 40, we're going to see how he's going to play that out through the planning of the tabernacle, the planning of the priests, and how God enters the tabernacle. But let's, let's zoom in a little bit for the next few minutes. As I, you know, we come in and help survey Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 40. Well, in Exodus 25 to chapter 31, you'll see the planning of the tabernacle. And so these details may be boring, but look closely to this because what tabernacle means is Hebrew for dwelling place. And that's important because, you know, God and Jesus himself found in John 1, 14, he you know, dwelt among his people and eventually he's going to dwell in us. But that's going to be a for This tabernacle is just a foreshadow of what Christ is going to do dwelling here on earth, but also it's a foreshadow of God dwelling in us. And it's getting ready for us to enter Eden once again, entering paradise with God. One of the great things when you look at this uh, descriptive of the tabernacle is uh, from a practical perspective, people ask, well, does it matter how we worship God? Does God uh, care as long as we're, we're trying to worship him, we're doing the best we can? Well, this uh, planning of the tabernacle, when when God is specific and saying, hey, this is how it's built, this is how it's done, here's how I want you to worship, and here's how I want you to live after me. This is a great example in the Old Testament of how God does have a, a specific way he wants us to pursue him, that he wants to dwell with his people, and this is just a great example in the Old Testament of God does have a plan for the way that we worship, which is why we always got to go to his word and heed his direction and how we even today will worship God. Absolutely. And the purpose here that God has for Israel and really the world is to rip, it's representing Eden. If you look at the descriptions of how you know the tabernacle is supposed to be set up, it, it's supposed to represent the world and the holy, the holy place and the holy of holies represent Eden and God's presence once again. Now it's God showing Israel in the world, I want to dwell with you again, but there's a plan. You can't directly dwell with me, but there's a plan for that to happen. Now this is going to be that leading right into the priests and how the priests are supposed to represent Israel on you know in their behalf to God, even though they're consecrated and set aside for the work of you know serving God. They're just a representation of us. We are all supposed to be serving God. And then that is fulfilled through Christ. And as Peter refers to this, for, refers to this in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 5 and 9, that we as Christians, if you are a Christian, you are a priest as well. As the priests offer sacrifices, we offer sacrifices to God. And that's why the holiness is important, right? The priest could only go into the temple, the high priest, once a year, and he had to be purified by blood, and he could be a priest in the presence of God because he was holy. And that's the same way we enter into the presence of God these days is because we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Therefore, we are holy because we are sanctified and purified, just like the priests were. Just like the priests. And you know, the blood is added to the ears, their hands, and their feet. Whatever they hear, whatever they do with their hands, and wherever they go with their feet, it's supposed 
supposed to be set aside for God. So if you're reading the details of the priest and tabernacle, recognize this is supposed to represent God's plan of restoration of mankind, not just to Israel, but to the world. Now, there's a random heart stop in Exodus 31 where literally the work stops. They observe the Sabbath, which is God telling Israel to trust in him. Say, you need to rest in me and trust me. Even though there's a lot of work to be done, you need to stop what you're doing and focus on me so so that the world may see that I am God. And then later as Christians, what we do with the Sabbath is we rest in Christ for our salvation. Even though there's work to be done to be saved, Christ is taking care of all of the work. And God's saying, trust in me, rest in me, Sabbath in me and the salvation that I offer. So this Sabbath is just a representation of foretelling of what God is going to do. Now, Exodus 32 happens where Israel really messes up. This is the golden calf incident where Moses is getting getting the law and Israel, you know, they receive the 10 commandments and they pretty much break all 10 commandments at once. And so it's pretty impressive that they can sin that bad. You know, if one sin is the cause of death, as we found in the garden, then Israel deserves to be wiped out. And that's what God says. He's like, I don't want to wipe them out. But there is a very important moment that Moses does. He intercedes on Israel's behalf. And in Exodus 32, verses 30 to 32, make sure you underline that because Moses offers up his life in the place of the nation of Israel. Now, that's a foretelling of what Christ is supposed to do, what is going to do, and what he has already done as gave, a, gave up his life to ransom many. Now, God says no because Moses cannot pay for not even the sins of one person, yet alone the sins of a nation. But Christ can. And so when Moses does that, that is supposed to you know, foreshadow what Christ is going to do later, as we see in the New Testament. Now, continuing on in verse uh, Exodus 33 to 34, this is where you know, this describes it as the tent of meeting where Moses is talking with God and Moses is continuing to intercede with um, on the behalf of Israel to God. And this is where the covenant is renewed. And again, this is a foreshadow of Christ again. So Moses is just a shadow of what Christ is going to do and be like as he sacrifices his life on our behalf for the sins that we have committed. But there's another important verse in Exodus 34 verses six and seven. This is where in the book of Exodus, which in Hebrew means names, God is describing who his name is, who his reputation is, who he is. And he says, God says in verse six of Exodus 34, that I am a God that's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. Another way for that is grace to show grace to thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, this is just, again, a foreshadow of the New Testament. This is why it's so important to know our Old Testament, because God cannot let sin go. That's why Christ needed to come and atone for our sins. So now we will continue in Exodus 35 to 39, where this is the making of the tabernacle. And this seems to just repeat the descriptions of what happened earlier in chapters 25. Um, but this isn't really important, because this is, as one commentary showed is that this is the faithfulness of God who dwelt among his people despite their failures. Now, this comes from the Bible knowledge commentary, which you should get. But this is God dwelling with his people, even though they failed, they sinned greatly. And so is God's faithfulness and mercy. But also, it shows the obedience of Moses carrying out God's instruction. So as Pastor Hayden alluded to earlier, God saying, hey, I have instructions for you to worship me. Here's Moses faithfully obeying him. And then what happens? 
chapter 40. Now, this is super important. That this, as the tabernacle erects, it comes into, you know, they set it all up just as God said he would. God comes down and dwells in the tabernacle. And it's such a powerful event that no one, not even Moses, remember Moses was communing with God, not even Moses could enter the tabernacle. Now, this is, again, the, the plan of restoration, the plan of a, of a new Adam coming. Now, it's not Moses, as we found out. It's not Moses. It's someone else. But it's God going to restore mankind back into his presence. We will one day dwell with God again. And he's foreshadowing that, but there's a problem. Moses and Israel is outside the, tent, outside the tent. They cannot dwell in the presence of God. So there's something that needs to happen. There needs to be a sacrifice. So Exodus 40 leads, leads, uh, leads off on a cliffhanger to show it's setting up Leviticus. How can we become uh, from unclean to clean? So Exodus 40 is so important. So make sure you see that detail of Moses not being able to enter the tabernacle for the purpose of setting up Leviticus so that one day we will have a sacrifice in our place so that we can dwell back in the presence of God. Now, Pastor Hayden, that concludes our DBR um, spotlight for today. So what is the special topic that you and I have been studying this week? So this week's special topic we uh, talked about introducing last week is the idea of conversion therapy. It's this uh, laws that have been passed in uh, Canada, uh, laws that have been, similar laws have been passed in California and other states, a law that is forthcoming at least uh, will be brought to the forefront there in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, Just some things that we need to bring up as a church as we are looking to interpret these things through a biblical worldview and to make decisions uh, that would be pleasing to God in the midst of a culture who's trying to push back on what it means to be a Christian and give biblical counseling. And so uh, this idea of conversion therapies is not a new idea. It's a It's an old idea, especially when it comes to the secular ideas of conversion therapy. Uh, And these things are uh, uh, the idea that if somebody is dealing with an LGBTQ uh, identity issue or a sexual uh, dysphoria or these problems, that uh, you can go to a counselor and they can uh, give you therapy, try to, you know, in a different number of ways, try to make you not gay or make you not feel these feelings or help you uh, change from. Uh, you know, gay or bisexual or, or transgender identity back to uh, normal as, or back to this idea that there is male and female and males should have desires for females and females should have desire for males. And so uh, this conversion therapy idea suggests that it is would be wrong and in these cases now illegal to tell somebody who is struggling in the LGBTQ community uh, that we should uh, never tell them that what they're doing is sinful or wrong. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, as we were doing our research in several articles from, you know, from BBC, uh, reading the Canadian law itself, seeing articles about, you know, states like Indiana that the that is now being presented with a conversion therapy ban is it's not about what traditional conversion therapy w- was called in the secular mm-hmm. sense. There are laws already against physical conversion therapy, especially the shock therapy that's really well known. And so this is, a, you know, I would say rhetoric language to try to connect shock therapy back to conversion therapy when that's not even what they're even addressing. Those laws in, in England and Canada, even in the United States, they're already 
forbid physical conversion therapy, especially when it comes to shock therapy. Now, what they are trying to use that rhetoric to connect, you know, help people uh, connect that to that. In reality, what they're talking about is talking conversion therapy, seeking out counselors that will try to convince you otherwise. And so that's what the, the focus is on the laws at hand. Right. And that's why the ordinance 3121 that they're talking about there in Indiana says that this ordinance prohibits unlicensed persons from practicing conversion therapy. Well, what would an unlicensed person be that's trying to talk to somebody about their uh, LGBTQ identity? Well, these are pastors, and these are churches, people who don't have a license for psychiatry and psychology and counseling. And it says that from practicing conversion therapy with children under the ages of 18, with a penalty up to $1,000 a day. And these are pointing out there in that community, pastors and ministries that are trying to uh, counsel, uh, you know, teens and, and youth that are dealing with these problems. And they're trying to say, you can no longer talk to people about their uh, identity. Identity issues. And even clarify maybe in your mind what they're thinking. They're not talking about people on their on their own volition to come to a counselor to say, hey, I need to explore. They say, no, that you can allow a person to explore and help the, you know, the journey. If they decide to stay heterosexual, that's fine. If they said, you know, I want to identify as a homosexual, that's fine. The exploration is is the part that they're they're okay with. It's the biblical counselor, it's the parent that says, No, we are in a keep you at a heterosexual to in their own words to say no you are going to change your identity back to what is you know you know systematic which is normal cisgender cis identity um, to what is normal in the religious context. So that's the language that they're trying to address and these laws and the activists are fighting for. It's not the ex- exploration in a, in a counseling room. It's the people saying, no, this is wrong. You need to fall back to what God has um, ordained and created. Yeah, and even more so here, it becomes very problematic when it says if you're dealing with any of these uh, identity issues, that it'd be illegal, given this ordinance, to change gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attraction or feelings towards individuals of the same gender. Here's where this is a problem. Uh, if we are needing to counsel a heterosexual individual uh, who has like over-sexualized uh, romantic attractions towards the opposite sex, even in ministry and even as a parent, you would try to help counsel your children to keep their uh, sexuality uh, within a biblical framework or to try to uh, not necessarily not be attracted to the opposite sex, but say, hey, here's how you can better uh, appoint your sexual attractions. And here's what the Bible says about how you as a young man can keep your way pure as you as a young man should should look at your sexuality and keep it within a framework of biblical obedience. Now we're saying here, well, if now if they're claiming that they are LGBTQ, you as a parent and as a pastor, we would not even be able to address uh, these normal uh, issues that the Bible makes very clear that we do have to, in some sense, reduce sexual romantic attraction. Not that we don't allow our kids to be attracted to the opposite sex, but we say, hey, those things have a proper place and a proper function, and they're within the framework of a biblical marriage. It's trying to say, hey, we can't even talk about that anymore. Mm -hmm. So Pastor Hayden, you know, this might get us alarmed or heightened about the situation, right? we are supposed to turn to the Bible as Christians. 100%. We need to turn to God's Word. So what are some passages that you, as we discussed, that we want to help our church focus on as we navigate 
the culture around us as they push this. Right. And of course, you guys know it. Uh, first one you need to go to is Genesis 1, 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. We have here a creation design and a creation order that we have male and female. And so as Christians, as believers, it really is anybody that lives in the world, we understand that not only a special revelation, but general revelation, natural revelation says that we have male and we have female, and we live life understanding that there are uh, two genders, male and female. There are two sexes, male and female, okay? Uh, man, and there's so many more. Romans 1, 26 to 32, that's a big one. You want to read that one? Yeah, let me read at least parts of it. I mean, first off, beginning in verse 26 of Romans 1, <clears throat> excuse me, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, continuing on in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then finally, in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Yeah, this is a great scripture because it says, listen, the, the governments, uh, Canada, right? They Those people know the Bible says, hey, no to to uh, homosexuality, no to, uh, you know, uh, immoral sexual practices, but yet they don't only, uh, they don't only do them and they don't only accept them. They give approval and they're trying to make everyone else approve these things as well. And we just have to understand that as Christians, right? Especially when we're counseling people, especially when people come to us and say, Hey, I heard the gospel and I want to respond to it, but I'm also gay. I'm also, uh, I'm also a transgender. Uh, and, as Christians, we have to say this, you know, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That means uh, we look at 1 Corinthians 6, and when it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves or greedy or drunkard people, uh, none of these people are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And it says, and such were some of you. We were all sinners. We were all trapped within this sinful uh, world in many of these ways, but we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what we do as a church is we're going to stand up and say, uh, whatever it is, even if the government tells us we're not allowed to do it, even if uh, society tells us it's wrong, we are going to make sure that anybody who, who wants to come to Christ, when we preach the gospel and we call people to turn from their sin, turn from their own way and turn to Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And part of that is counseling people to say no to sin and say yes to God, is to call people into the living a life of righteousness and not a life of, of gratifying the desires of the flesh. And that's why at Compass Bible Church, we're always going to say we're going to convert Everybody. I mean, our desire is to convert everyone, and we don't care what the government's going to tell us about it. Of course, we won't really respect. We're not going to be argumentative. We're not going to be angry at people. But what we're going to do is we're going to stand firm on what the Bible says. And what we have to say is, you know, those things are sinful. The LGBTQ plus community, those identities are not in line with what God's uh, creation decree is, nor his uh, revealed revelation throughout Scripture. So we're always going to say as Christians, uh, conversion therapy in a secular context, sure, not great, right? Uh, we understand 
understand those things aren't even based on the Bible. And so I'm against those things too. But what I'm not against and what I'm completely for is preaching the gospel and making people understand that they need to be a new creation. And when they're a new creation, the old has passed away. Your identity is now in Christ, not in sexuality, not in gender, not in sex. It's in Christ. And therefore the old has passed away and the new has come. Nothing here on this earth will be able to help us fight sin and defeat sin. In secular conversion therapy, if it's physical or talking, nothing will change. Only the power of the gospel can save. And so as a church, what we want you to do is to remember the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save anyone. All right, guys, we're going to end with that. We have a couple of announcements we want to get to. Uh, We have our Compass Students Discipleship now, February 18th through the 20th. Mark your calendars for that week. Uh, For students 6th through 12th grade, you can register online at compasshillcountry.org slash students or at church on Sunday at our Connect table. We also are celebrating the multiplication of a brand new life group. Bob and Barbara Johnson are launching a life group Friday, February the 11th at 10 a.m. So if you're interested in joining that life group, let us know, but be praying for it as we continue making disciples here in the Hill Country. Thank you guys so much for, uh, for listening in. We look forward to seeing you guys soon.